So first of all, it's good to be it's good to be back with you all. I was I was away uh, I was away last weekend. I was at a church in Maryland uh, doing a doing a retreat for them, uh, just talking about money and greed and the kingdom of God. You know the basics. Um, but we're back in Isaiah. We're almost we're, we're we're like almost done with the book, guys. There's like 20 chapters left. Um, we're 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 like a year in. It's only it's only going to take another year. It's fine. Chapter 46, which we didn't read this morning. But it's going to be, but but I'm, but we're going to discuss, but we're going to discuss anyway. Chapter forty-six is a word of comfort to the people of Israel. Chapter forty-seven, which we just read, is a word of judgment to Babylon. But it's also true that judgment of particular empires in the scriptures are also judgments of what's called the logic of empire. And the thing about the thing about logics that is kind of the way we think about the world and the way that we're the way that we are in the world is that that affects us as individuals and it affects us as communities. So said another way, when when God offers this comfort to Israel and this judgment to Babylon, he's comforting a specific people and he's judging a specific people. But he's also saying that if you're like Israel, then this comfort is for you. But also, if you're like Babylon, then this judgment is for you. So that's where we're going, chapters 46 and 47. But I want to start with 46. We didn't read this earlier, so I'm going to read much of it here. But as, I, as, I, as we go through it, I want you to think of these two points throughout this sermon. Simple points. Simple points and simple truths that we need to continually remind ourselves of. And they're found in this, this wonderful song that I sing to my daughter, Junia, whenever I need to calm her down. And that song is, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. And here are the points. They are weak, but he is strong. You, I, we are weak, but the Lord is strong. In the beginning of chapter 46, we have verses 1 and 2. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together. Unable to rescue the burden, they themselves go off into captivity. So Isaiah right here is calling out the Babylonian gods by name in order to embarrass them. It's, it's, it's really important to Isaiah that, that the people of God know that God is not just concerned with toppling generic idols. God's concerned with toppling the very specific idols that the people are, are up against. It's not enough to just, to just be against idolatry. We have to discern and name particular idols. Because once they're named, they become easier to fight. For example, Jesus names mammon or riches as an alternative God, an idol that vies for our attention and our worship. And when we understand money in that way, as this thing that, that, that constantly wants to be our God, then we can be more intentional about using it as a tool rather than risking being enslaved to it. But we can name other gods, other idols, idols of comfort, idols of security, idols of self, idols of your kids, idols of your spouse, or whatever it is that steals your affection that you should have for the Lord, or that vies for your worship. These things are idols. But Bel and Nebo, which are named in this first verse, are local gods. 
specifically, and we have, we have some, local, some local gods. In Texas, I think one of these local gods is youth sports. A friend of mine, Duquan, tweeted this this, this this week. He said, badly needed in U.S. Christianity, compelling testimonies by parents who love sports, whose kids are gifted in sports, but who nonetheless chose to set limits, prioritize worship, and keep the Sabbath as best they could, and whose kids still had vibrant, sports-loving childhoods. Brothers and sisters, one of the issues for us is that we often over-program and over-schedule our kids, even at the, even at the expense of corporate worship. We subtly build into the lives of our children that busyness is a virtue, constantly doing stuff. But what if we cultivated children who understood that sharing and serving are central to our humanity, not merely busyness? And I get it. Sometimes I want stuff for my kids to do just to get them out of my hair. Like, I, I get that. But understand, the, but, but, but understand the threat of that particular type of idolatry. When our, one of our members, Paul Putz, is writing a book on sports and Christianity and stuff, I, I encourage you to look that up. I think there, I think there might be some portions on, on youth sports. All right. See? Shout out. The question for each of us is this. What are our local gods? But more important than that is the fact that the word of the prophet is that those gods can't really give you what you really need. In addressing the remnant of Israel, those who are left after the Babylonian conquering and exile, the Lord's telling the people, look, Babylon is not going to win. I will. Verses 3 and 4 are perhaps the most comforting words that you'll hear today. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob. All the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. I don't think y'all know how much that preaches. I think the 21st century King James uh, translation of this is actually the best. It says this, and, and even to your old age, I am he, and even to hoary hairs will I carry you. Listen, listen to these verbs. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. Do you know something in common about those verbs? Make, bear, carry, deliver. Those are words that we associate with childbirth. I know some people get bent out of shape about the, 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 the very common father language in Scripture and the, and the more rare feminine references to God, but the latter are right here in this text. God's relationship with us is to be that of a nurturing mother. And I've told stories about Junia before, my youngest, the 10-month-old, and Desiree and I are in this stage right now where she doesn't want to sleep at night. So she wants to wake up like two or three times a night, which means we don't consistently sleep. And sleep deprivation is a form of torture. And so everybody in our household is like on edge. And while she and I may be irritable, the fact remains, it's not the baby's fault. Junia is supremely vulnerable. She only lives because we care for her. This even applies to my three-year-old. Jasmine only lives because we care for her, and she's three, and so she does three-year-old things. So she especially loves to get on her mom's nerves. And when I get home, she's so sweet to her father. 
It's like, Daddy, I love you. You're my best friend. But she tries our patience and she pushes our buttons. And I have to remind myself in those situations of my almost godlike comparative power in her life. She lives because we care for her. And this is most accurately the way that God describes his relationship with us. And it's also why idolatry makes him so upset. It's, it's how upset you would be if or when your child whom you bore, whom you carried, whom you delivered says to you, I hate you, mom, or I hate you, dad. That hits at the very core because you know how much you've poured out for that child. Whether you bore them or whether you adopted them, whether you're fostering them, like, like all of that. The temptation in those moments is anger. But the Lord does not respond with anger. The Lord responds with comfort. He responds with the reaffirmation that God is the one who bears, the one who carries, the one who delivers. In verse 6, he goes on. He says some of these things that these, that these idols will claim to do for people. Some, some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. But the issue, according to Isaiah, is that gold can't save. It can't even move. And gold can't make your child love you. So then God, in verses 8 to 13, reminds us of something that we constantly need to be reminded of, that we cannot save ourselves. He has to come to us. We, brothers and sisters, are weak. You're going to constantly face situations that you can't control, situations where you don't know what to do, situations where you may know what to do but feel like you can't do it. Maybe it's issues of lust that you feel like you can't shake. Maybe it's anger against your parents or your brothers or your sisters or your neighbor that you can't shake. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship with your child that's a particular thorn in your side, not saying that the child is a thorn, just their behavior. Maybe, maybe there are situations where you cry out to the Lord, how long? I can only take this for maybe three days and then I'm going to lose my mind. God knows, dear brother. God knows your sister. God knows that you're weak. God knows that I'm weak. God knows that, that I can't, in my own flesh, thrive on three consecutive hours of sleep a, a, a night for weeks at a time. Like, it's not sustainable. But, but the question is, whether we believe not only that God is strong, but also that he's promised to uphold us. When you struggle with sin, do you really believe that through faith in Christ that God has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within you? To not only convict you of sin, but to give you the resources to put it to death. That, that you don't actually have to lose your temper with your spouse, because by the Spirit, you can choose not to. That you don't actually have to lose your temper with your child, because by the Spirit, you can love them gently in their vulnerability. Now, obviously, discipline and consequences are important for them to learn, but those are often obscured by our unrighteous anger. Our weakness is occasion for God's grace. God actually can, it, it, it seems to me from the scriptures that God only, that God often acts in our lives precisely at those points where we are weak. And Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, after talking about a friend of his who experienced mind-shattering revelations about the Lord, it could, it could have been Paul himself, we don't, we don't know. But he says this, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, 
I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying is that it is precisely at those points where we suffer, precisely in those times that we are weak, when we are at the end of our ropes, it's at those times that the Lord delights to act. Because those moments are the moments where we are most aware of who we really are. People utterly dependent on the God who made us. Utterly dependent on the God who made us, bore us, carries us, and delivers us. This is actually what it means for us to pray unceasingly. Basil the Great said it this way, this is how you pray continually, not by offering prayer and words, but by joining yourself to God through your, through, through your whole way of life so that your life becomes a continued and, unin and uninterrupted prayer. Children may forget that their lives are entirely dependent on others, but it's still true. And when Christ tells us that our faith is to be like that of a child, this is one of the things that he's talking about, that we know that we are vulnerable and that we're not afraid of that fact and that we don't feel like we have to constantly cover it up, but by leaning on the Lord and by leaning on the people that the Lord has called to care for us. But here's the issue, because, you know, there's always an issue. And it's most clearly laid out in Isaiah 47. There are people out there and in here who don't think about this, who don't think that way about themselves. This is the indictment of Babylon. And I want you to think of the stark, also feminine images in chapter 47, some of which I know are traumatic. I'll pick out a few phrases. So verse, ver, verse 1, go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. That's a, that's, a mock, that's, a, that's a mocking of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the, of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender and delicate. These are words of shame. Verse 2, take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. This is, this is the fall from queen to slave. In verses 5 to 7, God says that Babylon was haughty, that it showed no mercy. Yes, but then, in, but then in verse 7, it says, this is what Babylon says, you said, I am forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. You said you're the best, that you can handle anything. You had no idea what that meant. Even more harrowing are verses 8 to 10. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a single moment, on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Widowhood. Especially in the time of Isaiah, but also today. is often a position of vulnerability. 
And the more patriarchal the society is, the more vulnerable women were and are. Childlessness was a curse. Without heirs, you would be without help in your old age. And so here, Isaiah is using these images of widowhood and childlessness as images of vulnerability. Images that Babylon is eager to distance itself from. That's why they say things like, I will never be a widow. I will never suffer the loss of children. Babylon is priding itself on never being vulnerable. There's a diagram. It's a graph. It's the mess around and find out graph. This is the this is this is this is the safe for church version. Um, so what you will what you will see uh, is that the amount that people mess around is directly correlated with the amount that they will find out. In this case, Babylon is at a ten, and when you look at the line, they mess around a lot, so they find out a lot. The situation of the people of God is to stay at that zero. Don't mess around. We don't, have, we don't ever have to find out. But in this case, God is saying, oh, you think you're a big shot? Okay, well, let's see how you are when I send Persia in to do, as the Gap Band says, to go, up, to go oops upside your head. Listen to verses 12 and 15. These are wild. Just listen again to this. Keep on then with your magic spells and your many sorceries, which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you, you, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you, these you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. This fire is not a nice candle flame that lulls you to rest as you lay in your comfortable bubble bath. This is the raging inferno of holiness that consumes all of your ill-gotten wealth, all of your mishandled power, and all of your arrogance. These two chapters are a tale of two logics, two different kinds of heart. The heart of the people of God in chapter 46, a, a vulnerable people who, though they are rebellious, are reminded of God's love for them and their own dependence on him. That's one. But on the other side, you have the heart of empire. In chapter 47, a voice that says, I'm all that matters. I'm going, to erupt, I'm going to erect structures for my own success and my own self-aggrandizement. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. To the former, to the repentant person who comes before the Lord in recognition of their own vulnerability, the Lord not only offers open arms, but he offers divine power, strength in the midst of weakness. Because it is precisely when we are weak that God is strong. But if we are insistent on our own strength, then we essentially try to make God appear weak. And that does not end well. And so to the latter, to the one insistent on, infirm, on affirming their own strength, to the one insistent on their own self-sufficiency apart from the Lord and apart from the people whom the Lord has called to care for them, the Lord offers judgment. Not to destroy all the time, mind you, but definitely to humble. De 
definitely to remind Babylon or you and I who the real big dog is. And here's the thing, I, none of us want to be, none of us really wants to be in that situation. None of us wants to be forcibly humbled and, and reminded of our actual place. I mean, I don't, I don't want that. And so the Lord in the scriptures gives us examples like Babylon to avoid. If we continue to build our lives to please our idols, then we will end up having to figure out life when God dashes those idols to the ground. You can think about this when you think of folks who, uh, who see their work, their work gets, gets to the level of idolatry and their families suffer and some lose their families as a result. There are a number of other examples that this could work where, 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 where these, these, these good things that the Lord has given us, where they take this position of, of idolatry and the Lord has to teach us, okay, I'm going to need to take this away for you to understand what it means for me to actually be your God. Well, brothers and sisters, it's best to preempt that and instead, alongside the people of God, figure out what it means for us to build our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ rather than upon the sinking sand of every other local God that vies for our worship and our attention. Brothers and sisters, Christian salvation is a message, an ethic, and a community. But each of these elements is shot through with this truth. God saves sinners. God is the one who saves, and he doesn't just open the door for you, but he often carries you through it. And we are weak, sinful people. But the good news is that the Son of God came, took on flesh, lived, healed, died, and was raised, not merely to remind you of your weakness, but to show you what true strength is. And not just to show you that strength, but to give it to you. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is, the greatest gift that you could ever receive, the very presence of God in you and working through you, not only to mortify your sin, but to bear witness to the world, the good, concrete, and material implications of the kingdom of God. It's because of this spirit that we can look at the scriptures and the words of our Savior and, we, and, and, and not think incredulously, wow, that's ridiculous. How could I possibly do that? Instead, we can think expectantly, wow, that seems ridiculous. Lord, how can I do this? This then is my challenge to you, dear brother or dear sister. When you face your sin this week, your impatience, your anger, your lust, your pride, your greed, the sin of standing by and allowing injustice to be perpetuated before your eyes. Instead of thinking in terms of I can't, be reminded that by the spirit of the living God, by the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, by the spirit of the one who parted the Red Sea, by the spirit of the one who freed Israel from slavery, the one who gave sight to the blind, the one who gave liberty to the oppressed, by the one who gives good news to the poor and preaches freedom to the prisoner by the spirit of that one you can so go before the lord in tears if you must and remind yourself of the truth that christ that in christ and by his spirit you will not bow to sin to to the flesh to the world or to the devil encourage your brothers and sisters in this truth it is easy to forget in a world that berates us over and over again with other forms of salvation, a world that berates us over and over again with our own anxieties, a 
a world that tells us we, that, that, that we must be omnicompetent, that is good at everything. Carry yourself, do better, handle these things yourself. We have to be the kind of people who constantly tell each other over and over again, we serve the God who made us, who bore us, who carries us, and who delivers us. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we bear witness to every day of our lives. And my prayer is that when others see our lives, when others see the way that we care for our children, the way that we, and the way, the way that we as single brothers and sisters love our neighbors and our friends, the way that we serve the poor and the hungry, that they would see the lives of men and women who go before God daily and say, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can. And because you can, by your spirit, I will. Let's, let's pray.